Hi. Hi. I always say hate the beginning. I never, I don't know how to sound when I start it. Because I say like, hey guys, every time. And I want to say something different. But then every other option I try sounds so horrific. Okay. So I'll just. Just lean into the weirdness. Just weird out. Okay. Now I'm going to say hey guys. (laughs) I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And And this this is Hashtag Hashtag History. History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Hey guys, this is Hashtag History, episode 35. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And hey, Leah, remember how last week we did that super uplifting episode about the magical, wonderful, happiest place on earth? Absolutely. Loved it. Well, this is not that. Okay. In fact, (laughs) this week's episode may be one of the most corrupt episodes yet. (sighs) This week, we are discussing the United Fruit Company, an American company formed in 1899 to grow and trade bananas. Except they went on to do a whole lot more than that. They ended up controlling nearly all transportation across all of Central America, Colombia, Ecuador, and the West Indies. This control extended to the political and economic realms with the United Fruit Company essentially using capitalism to control the entire banana republic. When workers at the UFC requested things like actual, formal, written employment contracts, which included things like eight-hour workdays, six-day work weeks, and to actually receive money for their hard work as opposed to coupons, yes, they were being paid with food coupons to be used at the UFC's own on-base food store, the local Colombian government opened fire, killing anywhere from 47 to 2,000 people. Now, on that horrible note, I would just like to say that bananas are my favorite fruit, and therefore I am pretty freaking excited about this week's cocktail. So take it away, Leah. What would you do if, like, the drink I made was, like didn't have any bananas in it? Didn't have a singular banana in it? Yeah, what would you do? Uh, That... I, I don't know. I guess I never even considered the thought that there wouldn't be a banana in this drink. Well, because we are discussing the United Fruit Company this week, I thought it only appropriate to drink a banana flavored cocktail, <laughs> which is a little painful for me since I don't love banana flavors, especially artificial banana flavors. Yeah. Um, it's not my favorite fruit. <laughs> it's it is. Bananas are my favorite fruit. Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> so instead, I'm essentially doing a grown-up Dole Whip with hints of banana, which Yay. also kind of ties into last week's Disney episode and this week's banana episode. So all in all, it's a win for us. Yeah, I had thought last week with doing the Disney episode, I was feeling very 50-50. Like either you're going to do some kind of alcoholic dole whip thing which i was very excited about or there was another 50 percent of the me that was like she's definitely going to do a drink from like the cove bar or something yeah so now so i you get the best of both worlds oh my god yeah i do i get everything i ever wanted <laughs> yeah because this week's cocktail is the grown-up banana dole whip oh 
which we were just talking about how we've never done an actual frozen drink before on this podcast, which is crazy. It's crazy after what are we on episode 35? Yeah. How, we've we've had 30 something cocktails and we have never had a f- blended frozen drink before. I will say it was a lot of work. I was running around like a mad woman <laughs> trying to get ready and get, you know, hurry and everything. Yeah. But anyways, agreed. <laughs> it contains a f- whole frozen banana, a frozen pineapple, one cup of frozen pineapple, not a whole frozen pineapple. That'd be ridiculous. <laughs> um, a shot of rum. I might have put a little bit more than that. I'm I'm leaning into it tonight. <laughs> um, then some a half cup of coconut milk, which that's what makes it like creamy and smooth. So I'm very excited. Mm-hmm. And then a teaspoon of lime juice. I didn't actually measure it. I just squirted some lime juice in. I actually did measure, which is uncharacteristic for me. Yeah, very so. unusual, guys. Okay. <laughs> so just one fun fact. Dole Whip was introduced sometime in 1986, which was 10 years after the Dole Food Company took over from United Airlines as the sponsor of Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. If you've ever been to Disneyland, you know what we're talking about when we talk about yes. the Tiki Room. <laughs> Tiki, 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 tiki. Yes. Um, tiki Ooh. Room is located inside Adventureland um, in Disneyland. And if you've ever been to Disneyland since 1986, you will see a line wrapping through Adventureland of people getting in line for Dole Whip. And the Dole Whip is such a small little stand that if you guys listened to last week's episode... Um, you know that I didn't really start going to Disneyland until I was like in my 20s. So it was one of those times that I was with you, Leah, that I think I even was like, dude, what the heck is this huge line for in, at this like tiny kiosk? And I learned that that was the Dole Whip line. And now I have learned that they changed um, what used to be like Aladdin's Bazaar or yep. something into a restaurant where they also serve Dole Whip. And I feel like not a whole lot of people know that yet so last time we went every time I walked by the line I'd be like guys guys go in there yep we um Courtney my sister Courtney wanted a Dole Whip when we were in Disneyland in February so I saw the new location it's good it's so much better than the tiny little kiosk that has always been there which it's so funny people don't know about it yet so there was still a huge line for the kiosk and then i just walked up and ordered (laughs) it was a much better experience too yeah sorry not sorry okay (laughs) let's drink because i know you're beyond excited can't can't wait can't wait oh my god (laughs) (laughs) it tastes like if jamba juice dropped a shot of rum in your shake. And I mean that in a very, very, very good way. This is the best drink we have ever had on this podcast. It's definitely the my favorite consistency of drink we've ever had because I do yep. love frozen drinks. But um, I just wish there was more pineapple and less I wish banana. there was more banana. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I'll do all pineapple and you do all banana and then that'll be fine. I love, I love that idea. You guys, this is bomb.com. Are you giving it a 10? Yeah. I'm giving it an 11. Oh, my Lord. I'm giving it an (laughs) 8.5. Because it has banana in it. Mm -hmm. So freaking good. Granted, it is a real banana, and it's not that fake banana flavor that I don't like. So it's it's, it's okay. I mean, it's more than okay. Do you have enough leftover supplies to make this as a pineapple one? Um. No, actually, the pi- frozen pineapple I had was from a mixed frozen mixed fruit 
Oh. So I just took all the pineapple out. Oh my god, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's um, hilarious. And I went and bought frozen pineapple little chunks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had one singular banana because I took it the last time I was at my mom's house. She had a bunch of bananas and I just took one banana from her place. So, But yeah, that might be one of our better ones. I will Ooh. say, even if you don't love bananas, all the other flavors kind of complement it and make it okay. And make it okay or fantastic, depending on your uh, preference. <laughs> <laughs> that is freaking bomb. Okay, so let's start off this episode with a link, a lingle, a little jingle. What do you say? <laughs> a lingle. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay, it's just over a minute long, but totally worth listening to the whole thing, you guys. This here is the Chiquita Banana Jingle that. If you grew up in the 1940s, you couldn't avoid hearing. So let's give it a listen. I'm Chiquita Banana and I've come to say Bananas have to ripen in a certain way And when they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue Bananas taste the best and are the best for you You can put them in a salad No, not yet, my dear That greenish way you're looking means that you are ripe for cooking How about me? No, no, when you are fully ripe, my dear Those little flecks of brown appear Me? You're most digestible, my friend. Delicious, too, from end to end. You can put them in a pie. Any way you want to eat them. It's impossible to beat them. But bananas like the climate of the very, very tropical equator. So you should never put bananas in the refrigerator. Okay, so that uh, little commercial break was perfect because I was able to down my entire drink in that span of time. Mm-hmm. Now, this song that you guys just listened to, it first hit the radio in 1945. At its peak, it was played 376 times a day on radio stations across the United States, and it's considered today to still be one of the most successful commercial jingles ever. So this is an audio platform, Leah. So could you describe the video we just watched to our listeners, including describing the main character, Miss Chiquita herself? I have also uploaded a picture of her if you want to check that out. Well, the first thing I said when we finished the video was, well, that was a little racist. Yeah. It's just like a a caricaturized, I, I would guess, Brazilian lady. Yep. Uh, but it's with the banana. It's like a banana lady. I don't know how to describe it. (laughs) It's a lady, but she's a banana. Like she has regular human legs, but then from her hips up, she's a banana. (laughs) But she's wearing the, um, like the girl from Impan, what is it? The girl from Impanima? Yeah. Like hat, like the fruit hat and, and the fluffy sleeves and stuff. It's just a caricaturized thing. Yes. So exactly what you said. She's this sexy, exotic banana, which is so disturbing to say that a banana is sexy and exotic. But that's exactly what she is, dressed in this little skirt with a fruit basket on her head. And in that song, she's essentially giving people instructions about how and why to eat bananas, which seems like a kind of foreign concept now. Like, why would you need a commercial to tell you how and why to eat bananas? Everybody eats bananas except for Leah. But... 
I still eat them. <laughs> I love bananas, guys. Seriously, I love them so much. And I even like the artificial flavored of bananas. Anyway, but in the 1940s, this wasn't the case. In fact, in 1850, virtually no one in the United States had ever even heard of a banana, much less seen one or would know what to do with it if they had. Ooh, I had like a weird thing happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a like a like a reflex or something. Uh, even heard of a banana, much less seen one or would know what to do with it if they had one. That's why marketing for bananas was so important for the United Fruit Company. They had to create awareness and establish a reputation for the banana as a healthy, delicious addition to your daily diet. And they did this with these jingles. They also did so by creating a partnership with Kellogg's. Banana companies actually partnered with Kellogg's so that Kellogg's cornflake commercial showed sliced bananas on top of the cereal. Again, it was really just a major effort to integrate bananas into people's everyday lifestyles where bananas had never been before. Which I feel like that's like a staple now. You see bananas cut up on cornflakes. That, that's like yeah. I think to me, it was like so crazy, such a foreign concept to me that there was ever a commercial teaching people how and why to eat bananas. <laughs> but it was, that was a thing, guys, in the 1940s. Bananas are a tropical fruit with the majority of bananas being grown in Central America, Costa Rica, Guatemala, and Ecuador. The primary reason why bananas were not a known thing in places outside of Central America prior to the 1850s was because of transport. I mean, I can easily say, I'm sure you can too, Leah, buying bananas kind of sucks because for myself, as much as I love bananas, I don't buy a big bundle of them because I won't finish them before they all go bad. Bananas are super sensitive and the time span is so short from the time that they're ripe to when they go bad. So can you imagine trying to transport something with such a sensitive time limit across waters and borders to get to consumers in time? And not just time limits. Like, I feel like bananas bruise really easily. Totally. Shipping them would probably be a nightmare. They are super, super sensitive fruits. Now, the United Fruit Company, they were able to conquer this challenge by controlling virtually every transportation network in Central America. In 1899, a merger was formed between a fruit exporting company in Boston, Massachusetts, and numerous fruit plantations in Latin America, thus creating the United Fruit Company. The goal behind this business was to sell and transport bananas at a ridiculously low price to the rest of the world. By 1930, the UFC had essentially wiped out every competitor, becoming the monopoly in the banana industry. This one company ended up owning 90% of the banana business. This control extended to over 3.5 million acres of land across Central America, and the UFC quickly became the largest employer of the continent. But as with any kind of control, there is a point where too much control is too much control. A banana company should never have power and influence over things like governments, right? Right. But yeah, but that's exactly what they did. The company quickly and strategically chose Guatemala as their baby, where they would conduct some of their earliest development activities, according to a former United Fruit ex- executive. And there was a reason for this. At the time, the Guatemalan government was considered to be the weakest and most corrupt government in the area making it the most easy to manipulate and control. 
Eventually, the UFC had control of Guatemala's postal service and was responsible for creating the country's first radio and telegraph company. The United Fruit Company ended up being referred to as, well, Leah, let me have you check out a picture and then maybe you can tell me what the nickname the UFC got and why. El Pulpo. I don't know what that means, but I'm I, I was I don't expect to do with a squid. I don't know. It's a picture of a squid and it says El, Pul- El Pulpo, the Banana Chronicles. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't expect you at all to know what El Pulpo is. It's a El Pulpo is Spanish for octopus. Okay. So that's an octopus there. Yeah. So this uh, became the nickname of the UFC, the octopus. Now I'm the king of the swingers, oh, the jungle VIP. I've reached the top and had to stop, and that's what's bothering me. I want to be a man, man called. There was almost right nothing that the UFC did not touch in Guatemala. I know. The UFC gathered a reputation for bribing government officials, paying next to no taxes, and treating its indigenous employees like S-H-I-T. Part of you has to wonder, too, if that's has some hand in why they've become the country that they are today. It it absolutely 100% does. This is also where the phrase banana republic became a thing. A banana republic refers to the poor working class being dependent upon the success of one crop, in this case bananas, built on exploitation, capitalism, and corruption. And if your only context for the term banana republic is the clothing brand that goes by the same name... And maybe you are now wondering why someone would ever name their clothing brand with a term that has such a dark connotation. Great question for which I have no answer. Neither do they. I don't think they've ever actually addressed that. Exactly. They have been specifically asked and they give super vague answers about the origin of the name. But the fact that Gap didn't change the name when they purchased the company in 1983 strikes me as odd. Many consider the term to be very insulting and refuse to buy Banana Republic clothing for that reason. Others refuse to buy from Banana Republic because it cost $89 for a pair of pants. A a pair of pants that falls apart, like, in a week. Does it really? I've never once even considered buying Banana Republic clothing, so I didn't know the quality of it. I don't know... I might be making it up. I feel like I've probably had one item of clothing from Banana Republic, and I just feel like I always remember hearing people say it was not good quality not, stuff. At least not worth the price you're paying, you know? Part of the research that I did for putting together this episode was some online virtual window shopping. <laughs> <laughs> now, attempting to own any land in Guatemala was virtually impossible. If you were not an employee of the United Fruit Company, there was essentially no land for you to farm independently. The UFC had a practice of over-reserving land, saying they had to do this because natural causes like a hurricane could wipe out their plantations and they needed to have a backup plan. But in actuality, the UFC did this so that there was no land available to any other farmer that wanted to purchase it. Those farmers that did manage to grow their own crops on their own land were not allowed access to the railroad tracks that the UFC owned and operated. When the UFC found that a land was no longer profitable to them, they would tear down the railroad tracks and move on. Obviously, this sends the message that 
if the land isn't profitable for us, we are going to make sure it is not profitable for anybody. And then not to mention, like, when you set up a business in an area, things are going to pop up. Businesses, dependency on that business. And then when they're done, they just pack up. And I'm sure there's people living there, probably towns set up around this business that are just left there. Yep. Absolutely no regard for people that aren't making them money. This also meant that residents had almost no choice but to work for the UFC as they were responsible for nearly 90% of the continent's exports. The UFC was also responsible for persuading local governments not to construct highways. Again, because any means of transportation outside of those that the UFC created and controlled could jeopardize the profitability of the company. Being an employee of the UFC was not ideal. As a laborer for the UFC in Latin America, you did not have a formal work schedule with regular hours and days off. You did not receive the best medical treatment, which was really detrimental in malaria-ridden banana fields. And you didn't even receive a paycheck. Yes. Like I mentioned at the top of the episode, UFC laborers were paid in food coupons, which they could then use to buy food for themselves and their families from the on-base company-owned food store. In November of 1928, a number of employees from the banana plantations in Colombia went on strike, demanding a handful of things such as weekly pay, workers' comp, health benefits, eight-hour workdays, six-hour work weeks. Oh, and I don't know, a freaking paycheck? <laughs> at a time when the Red Scare was at an all-time high, and if you guys need a reminder about what the Red Scare was, go way back in the vault and listen to season one, episode four about the trial of Sacco and Vanzetti, in which we do an in-depth look at America's fear, particularly in the 1920s, regarding the potential rise of communism. Anyway, Red Scare, it's at an all-time high at this point. With the UFC strikers in Colombia, the U.S. immediately feared that this was an outbreak of communism, and they quickly demanded that the Colombian government do whatever they had to do to fix the situation. In response to this, the Colombian government had some 300 soldiers sent out to where the strikers were protesting. They completely blocked off the streets and even had machine guns up on the roofs of the buildings in their main square area of town. The military gave the strikers a five-minute warning to leave before they began shooting. The number of casualties ranges drastically depending on what source you read. Reports state that the deaths could be anywhere from 47 to 2,000 people. And this number includes children. The Red Scare played into the United States' motives in Latin America a great deal. Or did it? This is where a lot of the conspiracy and the corruption resides with the United Fruit Company. It has long been said that the reason behind the massacre and the U.S.'s manipulation of Latin American governments was because they were led to believe that all of Latin America was communist. But there is speculation as to whether this is actually true or if it was just a front or an excuse. The United States also made every attempt to appear as though they were not as involved in foreign affairs as they actually were. But we also know that this was not true because Secretary of State John Foster Dules was one of the major U.S. government officials that routinely claimed that the U.S.'s treatment of Latin America was because of the United States' anti-communist views. But Dules himself, as well as his brother, Alan Dules, the head of the CIA, 
both did legal work for the UFC and remained on the UFC's payroll for 38 years. Ugh. Right. In 1951, Guatemala elected a new president, Jacoby Arbenz. Right off the bat, Arbenz went to work at trying to limit the control of the United Fruit Company and to actually extend some of the profits of the company back to the people of Guatemala. Of course, fearing the loss of profits and control, the UFC told the United States that they had another Latin American communist leader on its hands. By 1954, the CIA had developed a military coup that took control of the country and had Arbenz removed from power and exiled. How freaking corrupt is this? It's like nowadays it's shocking to hear something like this. And um, Yeah, an American fruit company responsible for organizing a military coup in Latin America to dethrone the Guatemalan president. I mean, it's a fruit company, an yeah. American fruit company. That'd be like Dole getting their hands in, you know, the election of, I don't know, Brazil yeah. or something. Sure. It's right. It's, it's unacceptable. <laughs> <laughs> the company saw a decline in profits following the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961. As a quick reminder for anyone that does not remember, Bay of Pigs was a U.S.-funded and directed invasion of Cuba by Cuban exiles under the leadership of President John F. Kennedy. This invasion failed and forever changed the U.S.'s relationship with Cuba. This incident occurred at the height of the Cold War, and it should come as no surprise that the United Fruit Company had some involvement in this incident as well, right? Many of those Cuban exiles arrived in Cuba on board the United Fruit Company's own Great White Fleet, the largest private Navy fleet in the world. By 1970, the United Fruit Company had merged with another company, creating the United Brands Company. This merger was conducted by a man named Eli M. Black, who bought 733,000 shares of the United Fruit Company in 1968, making him the largest shareholder in the company. Unfortunately for him, he quickly learned that the company did not actually have as much cash as he had initially thought, and soon they were in massive debt. On February 3rd, 1975, Black jumped out of his office on the 44th floor of the Pan Am building in New York City, killing himself. Oh my gosh. I know. It's just like horrible event after horrible event. Ugh. Within the following years, the company was bought out by billionaire Carl Lindner Jr., officially becoming Chiquita Brands International. The United Fruit Company was no more. Chiquita is now today the leading banana company in the world. In fact, the banana that went into my cocktail this week had a Chiquita label on it. Although originally based in the United States, the Chiquita main office was moved to Switzerland in just 2019, where they continue to control 80% of the world's banana sales. One could hope with all of the transitions and new management, the corruption of the company may have ceased. But the Chiquita brand isn't so innocent themselves. In fact, in just 2007, Chiquita Brands pleaded guilty in United States federal court to the charges of aiding and abetting terrorist organizations. The organization that they were supporting was the United Self-Defense Forces of Colombia. Chiquita paid this organization $1.7 million to protect the interest of the company in Colombia, even though it was widely known that 
the United Self-Defense Forces of Colombia has been considered a terrorist organization by the United States government since 2001. Again, this is all in the name of a banana company. But believe it or not, bananas are today the world's fourth major food following closely behind rice, wheat, and milk. That's shocking. And I don't know if you're going to mention this, but it's not sustainable because bananas are going extinct and will no longer be with us in a very short amount of time. But I guess that's because it is the number, what did you say? It's the fourth leading food group in the world. In the world. And it's only produced in certain areas and certain regions. It's not like... Like rice can be pretty much grown anywhere. (laughs) And the plantations where the banana is being grown continue to become not profitable, not fruitful. Yeah. They're, 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 they destroy the land of their resources. Yes. Yes. Now, I don't want to go through this entire episode without devoting some time to looking at things from the other side. The UFC did do some positive things for the regions where it set up shop. The UFC created schools for the children of those that worked on their plantations, and they provided employment where there were no jobs before. But that's it. Because in addition to all of the other corruption we have already discussed in this episode, exactly what Leah just said, the UFC was also responsible for severe environmental degradation as they completely wiped out forest trees, filled in swamp areas, and destroyed entire water systems in order to build their banana plantations. All right. Well, I think that's enough corruption for one week. Yeah? Yeah. I um, just wish I had another one of these drinks because that was rough. Yeah. And the drink was the best part of tonight. So... Thank you guys so much as always for listening to this episode of Hashtag History. We will share the pictures of Miss Chiquita Banana and the octopus um, to our Instagram the day that this episode comes out. If you guys enjoyed the episode, do us a favor and subscribe to Hashtag History on whatever podcast platform you use. Share it with a friend and give us a rate and review. And be sure as always to check us out on Instagram at Hashtag History underscore podcast. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. Bye. Bye. History episode history. Oh god, it's really small. Hold on. Ugh, I hate when it does that. Zoom zoom zoom. El pulpo. 80% of the continent's exports. I don't I said continents, weird. 